So today on the podcast, we've got our biggest guest yet. His name's Nick Bernstein, and he's the Senior Vice President of Date Night Television in the West Coast for Viacom CBS. You've seen him on TV on The Late Late Show, hosted by James Corden, and he's become a well-known face. How are you doing, Nick? I'm good, thanks. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very nice introduction. Uh, <laughs> I agree with you that uh, you definitely shouldn't know who I am. It's hilarious that you do. Uh, I'm glad you watched the show and uh, it's, it's nice to talk to you. Through the pandemic, you've managed to turn the late, late show into a completely different show, really. There was less audience, so it was really reliant on cast members and uh, crew members, sorry. How is it that, like you say, you had a piece of art dedicated to you in the road, <laughs> on the street, on the on the path, what? street walk? It, it, it was, cool, uh, yeah, it was Fairfax and Beverly. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, this is a hilarious conversation for me to have <laughs> also. I don't know. Honestly, I, I mean, here's the thing that's really cool about uh, about what so many people have had to go through during the, the uh, this past two years is reinventing how they work, what they do, how they entertain people, how they just do their jobs. And so out of sheer necessity, without my input, um, the Late Late Show, when they got a chance to go back into the studio, uh, in order to have anyone to play off of, uh, the only people James could have to, to talk to were the people who work on the show and the camera people, uh, audio, uh, stage crew, uh, some producers, handful of writers. Um, it was still, you know, this is coming back to like <laughs> way back in September, 2020. Um, this was the, the, the transition from James being in, uh, in a situation like you or I in, are in right now where he's just in his garage and he has, he's telling jokes just into the void. There's no one responding. Mm. Uh, that going from that into, okay, at least I'm back in my relatively comfortable place, even though I'm very far away from people. He wasn't just six feet away. I mean, he was might might have been 20 feet away from uh, from most people, but still reacting in real time to human beings is something. I don't know how if we valued it enough. Yeah. Uh, it was, and it became a much looser show because, uh, because organically, that's just what it became. There's no point in standing at a monologue spot like you normally do and performing in front of your friends and your colleagues or people who work for you. That's not really, uh, that's, a, that's like a false premise almost. And so one of the great things about late night is how malleable it can be. Uh, and when the, the, the best people who do it, which includes James, are the ones who can lean into the change. Um, and, and he really did uh, by having these really fun, strange, quirky conversations with my friends and his friends. And they became people that uh, viewers knew or started to get to know. And then those sort of like recurring jokes became thematic throughout weeks or months we just put out this week, uh, we're on hiatus this week, but uh, we put out this volume two, which sounds mm -hmm. insane, volume two of 
Steve Scalfati, one of the band members, news jingles. And it's a 10 minute plus video of just him goofing around and coming up with new news jingles, which came just, I can't even remember how it started, but I'm pretty sure it was organically. Yeah. It just was a thing that happened. He called for a news jingle once and there it is. And then, you know, specifically for me to be part of any of this is outlandish. Mm -hmm. That is not my role ever. Well, it never was before. But it, I, it was most people uh, who worked on the show were not people who were on camera. Um, and most of it is real. Uh, I'd say the, the conversations that happen um, in the studio uh, are not planned. Most of the things that have happened to me, I did not know about in advance. Um, and uh, and it's all been it's all been, I'd say, mostly very fun and a handful of times i've had to explain to either my family or my bosses hey this is going to happen tonight and i'm really sorry and i hope you forgive me i can completely understand that but it it's like you say it's become a lot more relaxed and i think that's what makes the late late show so different to any other late night talk show yeah you've mm -hmm. got your felons and things like that but james came over and took over the late night talk show as a british man but it's completely different. Like he managed to get you to email the other day, the chief finance officer and call him the Rubinator. And then you've got like Ben Winston that puts you on a really high chair that increases each day. There must be some kind of experiences that you go through that you remember or just make you confused on how you, you got there because surely Nick Bernstein as a child, I know his first role was as a director for NBC Universal, but he couldn't have been imagining this. No, Nick Bernstein, uh, April 2020, wouldn't imagine this. Or April 2021, I should say, uh, wouldn't imagine that. And three weeks later, it just started to happen. One of the things that was kind of fun at the very beginning um, was, like I was saying, that room was really small. There were only a handful of people in it. But for me, even coming in to a room that was pretty, uh, was a pretty fine-tuned machine, with the, like I said, like the 10, 15, 20 people who had been in there for most of the time. I wasn't able to go in until uh, I got permission from my bosses to come in. Um, uh, they were still trying to keep a very uh, small profile of, of people in there. And, um, and so the ones who were in there were getting really used to the mechanics of what the show was, that, um, of that act one specifically. Uh, and then I didn't really know what to expect day one. Um, I knew they were gonna put me at the, uh, at the bar um, and then they put me in this very high chair and then they kept putting me in this higher and higher chair. Uh, and I thought even after like week one or literally by the end of that week, I was, I was a, a, essentially above the lights, the light grid, the lighting grid that is specifically as high as possible uh, to avoid people. That's where I was sitting. Um, and it was like the stuff that I grew up on that I really enjoyed in late night featured some of these things where it was someone who wasn't supposed to be doing something thrust into this position where they got a chance to play with uh, these iconic comedic figures. Um, so 
I just tried to lean into the idea that like I now I got to do that for a week and that was fun and I thought that was it but they enjoyed it and I enjoyed being with my friends and you almost forget that like oh yeah people are going to watch this people are going to see this um some of that kind of changed a little bit once we started having an audience come back in um where it's like does the audience know what we're doing are these people who are coming because they're fans specifically of the show they might be fans of the band that we have on they might be fans of one of the guests that are on they might be uh people coming from out of town looking to have a good time but not necessarily realizing or recognizing what the show's turned into can't blame any of that that's just sort of a very natural progression no matter whether it's a pandemic audience or an audience pre-pandemic um and so we we didn't change anything james and ben and rob and and Ian and like that whole gang um, continued doing the show as had been done before. Um, and so what's almost stranger sometimes is when when the when the audience does know us, does know our jokes, because we do these recurring things, and they pretty much come very naturally um where you know james mentions a product and then he looks at me and he asks me if it's okay to mention that product and most of the time i say no but it still gets in the show anyway mm -hmm. um you know it's like i was saying before with steve and and the news jingle and um you, like one of the cool things i think that wouldn't have happened had we not transitioned to the show this way uh we had our 1000th episode a few i guess two months ago now and uh, we, we, it was the first time we'd had a chance to celebrate sort of the number of years we'd been on the show, which is really nice. Like we missed our five-year anniversary because it happened th three weeks into the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and so some of those bigger celebrations we might've done, we weren't able to do. So we got to do it for the thousandth, but the way that we did it was really cool. Cause it wasn't just like a, or for, for me, I thought it was really cool. Um, it wasn't just like a clip show. It wasn't uh, in some like, big theater, which sometimes happens with these shows. It was in our studio, 56. And James got to toss to uh, several members of the staff to ask them what their favorite moments were in the show. And then we'd run those clips. And people know the members of the staff that James is talking to because they've all been on TV and been part of the show on camera for the last almost two years now. And I, I think that's a pretty special and unique way to celebrate uh, something like this. And honestly, it's uh, incredibly generous of James, I think, to do that because uh, that's such an incredible recognition of how many people are part of what makes this show work, um, both behind the camera and in front of the camera now. And, uh, and, and, I don't know, like to be able to showcase that and then also in that same episode uh, have like a, a special guest appearance by Tom Cruise. Uh, that is like, that's a real large swath mm -hmm. of what the show is now. You, like you say, you mentioned the past two years, you've had Ian and Rob, Cece, uh, Winnie, everybody all come on the show, but you must have noticed that whilst you've been sat in front row looking with your own camera now that you've got that there's some segments that you must 
love, hate, and never want to do. If I had to put you on the spot to choose a segment that you would love to do, hate to do, and definitely wouldn't do, which ones would you choose? That's a good question. Um, I'm not, you know what, here's, so I like, just in case people don't know, like of the things I've done, I think I have to rank them uh, the strangest things I've done. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would say I hated anything. I think there were things that made me more uncomfortable than uh, than comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever been necessarily comfortable. I've just sort of, I, I do my best to roll with the punches. Um, I, I like, um, <laughs> So I'm a horse racing fan. I've always yep. enjoyed horse racing. And I know that you watch the show clearly, so you know this. Um, uh, I wore this mask once that uh, that was from the racetrack in my parents' hometown. And it's this, uh, it was a red silk mask that was supposed to look like what jockeys wear, those silks that jockeys wear. But James said, probably accurately, that it looked more like women's panties and that line like I was not expecting that and I like covered my face with my hands and tried to melt into my seat um but out of that came this thing where they asked me if I would dress as a jockey they put a twitter poll up which not shockingly people uh voted I think 80 something percent to, uh, to let me, or that I should dress as a jockey one day. Um, so I said, all right, I'll, I'll do this. What I didn't know is that they had this giant plastic horse ready for me. My friends wouldn't tell me. I've people who I assumed were friends of mine on the staff (laughs) from me, the fact that uh, they created an entire set, uh, for me to sit on this plastic horse uh, which I had to do then for for the entire episode, which is longer than what even what's on television. Um, I can't say I would have like proactively said yes to all of those things, but in the moment, I can I can recognize this is very funny. This is a very funny thing that I am now a part of, and uh, whether I look good or not, I have faith that Brad and Tom and Dave and all the editors and Ben and Rob and uh, and James and Lauren like and all the people who are watching down the show are going to make the best version of this. Uh, and so I I have faith that uh, I have faith that it was going to turn into good television and that trumps almost everything else for me. Um, but I have actively wanted to take part in a lie detector test. Uh, uh, in an in an episode later on, because they thought that I had put a photo of myself, a giant photo on the wall, like this Hall of Fame style wall of James with all these superstars who've been on the show in the past. Uh, I didn't know that was coming, and same thing where I recognized well, this is pretty funny. But if somehow I fail this test, which I know I didn't, I, I did not do that. And I was, uh, I, I was not confident that this lie detector test would either be real or 
if I was like just nervous because I'm not supposed to be sitting up on uh, on the couch. Um, but again, like it was a very funny concept. It was a funny moment. And um, and I just think back, I've said this to people before, but like if I was watching this, if I was a teenager watching this or a college kid watching this and I was like, what the hell are they doing to their boss? Like I would be very into that. I would think that was a very fun, funny anarchic thing and that's my favorite part about 12 30 the time slot yeah. uh we are the late late show we're the we are the last bastion of possible anarchy that can appear on broadcast television which is you know it's free and for the people and um there are slightly less restrictions on it and the best versions of those shows have that feeling a little bit this uh anything can happen sort of vibe so i don't know if i um necessarily like i don't want to dress as a jockey again but i i i was game for it once um and then same thing with like i they made me <laughs> so we had this basketball player named Dwayne wade on uh and uh he's recently retired um, all-star hall of famer, future hall of famer. Uh, and I got a call from, uh, James Longman, who's another British producer on the show. Um, and he's like, Hey, do you want to, we're going to do this bit with Dwayne Wade. Do you want to play basketball with Dwayne Wade? And I love basketball. I'm a small man, but I, I, I it's my, a huge, like it's my favorite sport. And I was like, absolutely. I'll play like, that'd be amazing. And they're like, great. You're going to be the backboard. And I was like, God damn it. Like, uh, do you tell me that first? But then, uh, cause I've seen James have to be the human backboard. Um, I know how much, uh, how uncomfortable he is in it. Um, I wouldn't say I was comfortable in it. Um, but I definitely was like, of course I have to be a, a, involved in this bit. I'm not going to not be, do something with Dwayne Wade and, and James, uh, so I would say once again, like that's one that I wouldn't actively volunteer to do twice, but also, I don't know if they asked me to do it with someone like Steph Curry or Shaq or somebody, I'd probably do it again. Cause, uh, cause that's a pretty uh, wild moment. Would you ever do spill your guts or fill your guts? <laughs> uh, I feel like every day minus the food, I am playing that game. That is like the, I get asked the uncomfortable questions and there is no option, but to answer them essentially mm -hmm. uh, most of the time. So I'm not sure it would be drastically different. I'm not like, I, I'm a pretty like adventurous eater. I, none of that really, uh, the salmon smoothie seems like it would be uh, pretty, pretty rough to, uh, to swallow, but, um, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's, um, I prefer just sitting and watching. And if they ask questions, I don't mind participating. If they asked you to genuinely say when that show is going to be on a cruise or eat a century year old <laughs> egg, would you uh -huh. do it? What would you choose? Uh, <laughs> I'd say it is less complicated to eat the egg than to find our way onto the cruise, which has been, uh, I've, coming up on nine months worth of 
challenging conversations and it's way beyond just whether we want to do it or not. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'd probably take the egg. <laughs> <laughs> you yourself have graduated with a uh, master's, well, major, sorry, in a broadcast journalism as university do you think this is what led to you directing late night television in 2004 well the title of director is a little misleading because um director is a executive position on that side of uh things so it's almost like uh uh you know how they say there's no junior vice president Mm -hmm. uh i'm a senior vice president there is no junior vice president uh that was basically the equivalent of being a junior vice president was being i was a manager and i was a director and then i became a vp um i think that uh having a broadcast well uh having a television major um taking classes in uh television radio and film uh both production and programming and um writing uh gave me a sense of the types of jobs that are out there in a finite way. Um, it wasn't really until I moved to Los Angeles um, and my first job was as a page uh, at NBC. And so in that role, that's when I learned a lot more about all of the different opportunities that were in television because we had 25 or 30 people that were all pages at the same time. We were pretty tight-knit group. It felt like a grad school almost equivalency, um, the way that we were learning and uh, and who we got to meet and all the different jobs we got to see, whether that was people who worked on productions or people who worked for the studio or people who worked for the network, which I didn't really have a differentiation in my mind on those jobs was in school. I think in part it was because I wasn't thinking that far ahead yet. I was trying to stay in the moment and do the things in in my university life that uh, that were important to me at that time. Not saying I, if I do this, then I'm going to get that um, for better or worse. I mean, I knew a lot less, I'm sure, than a lot of my peers about the television industry. I just knew I wanted to work in it. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that, like, it was that year as a page where I got to meet people and see if they liked their jobs, if being a writer on a soap opera was drastically different, which I assumed it was, and it was than being a writer on a late night show. But the, uh, but the pressures had were similar. Um, coming up with a new storyline for, uh, at the time, like a, a soap opera that took place with where there was like a witch that was and uh, in, had invaded the town. Uh, coming up with the next storyline for that witch, I think weighed as heavily on those writers as coming up with monologue jokes for Jay Leno, who was hosting The Tonight Show at the time, um, and needed, you know, he'd look through hundreds and hundreds of jokes a day to come up with the 20 that he was going to tell that night. And that's a lot of pressure, too. Like you say, you've mentioned previously in the podcast that there is a chance that if you were a teenager, you'd love to see like their boss being messed around with. But you've worked with lots of different late night hosts and took chances and put your trust into them. But is there anybody that you personally look up to? Would it be said hosts that you've worked with in the past or is it somebody completely new that we may never have even heard of? That's a good question. I think it's probably both. Um, I, you know, the person who I think was the most instrumental 
to me career-wise was my first boss. Um, his name was Rick Ludwin, and he was the person who ran late night and variety and specials uh, for NBC, and he did it for almost 30 years. He passed away a few years ago. Um, but he was the first person who I think really recognized in me uh, that I really had a, a a passion and an eye for for late night comedy and um, and even though we were a generation apart in terms of uh, how we grew up and and what we what our influences were, uh, he kind of showed me like if we both enjoyed something, if we both watched something and thought it was funny, chances are there was a relatively wide swath of people who would agree and. So for him to have that type of trust in me, I thought was, uh, it just gave me a lot of confidence to continue exploring that career path. And I, I also knew pretty early on that I wanted to stay in a, in a place that I was continuing to learn and grow. And, and he gave me that, that opportunity also. And, um, and then you know, uh, for a while, I uh, after I worked at NBC, I had transitioned to working as a producer, and there were a lot of people who I looked up to in in that space who I I tried to just sort of take the lessons and the sort of theories that I'd seen from people like Debbie Vickers, who who ran the Tonight Show, and Jeff Ross, who ran Conan O'Brien's show. Um, there's a Saturday Night Live producer who became the Jimmy Fallon producer. Now he's Seth Meyers producer. His name is Mike Shoemaker, who influential in a lot of people's. Uh, lives the, those those three I think more than almost anyone were were largely influential um, in terms of temperament and decision making and um, and then you know I, I uh, of everybody in the late night sort of space I've, I've I admire and look up to almost everybody who's done these shows um, but Conan O'Brien is also like the person for me who um, I think, uh, uh, saw me first as more than an assistant in that space. And I think gave, uh, a lot of trust, uh, more than I'd ever sort of experienced, um, when they were creating new show, when they were looking for feedback for bits that they were doing. And even his production company was the, the one that, um, that I paired with to, to work on the Pete Holmes show, which was a late night show um, that uh, that ran after his program. And and, um, and that was a really, uh, that was a pretty sole uh, opportunity for me. And with the person who, once again, like I watched when I was in high school and college, who I had a huge uh, amount of respect for and uh, did a, did comedy that I I felt like I'd never seen before and, and really spoke to me in, in a unique way. So I've kind of tried to lean on that. Um, I would also say that currently the people that I work with is James, it's Ben Winston, it's Rob Crabb, James Longman, uh, Ian and Lauren, like this group of people, uh, I very much uh, work with but also admire, and they've instilled an enormous amount of uh, faith in in me as the the person who 
is both included in their gang, which is not always the case with network executives or studio executives, and also um, somebody who they can look to uh, if they bump up against challenges that uh, that I can help with the network or the studio to try and uh, make right, whether that's something like budgetary or something that is as mundane as, as uh, where the commercial breaks might hit during an episode, which seems crazy in an era where I know you probably watch on YouTube as much as anywhere else, but like, you know, when all, even when it came to like originally coming up with how are we as a show going to uh, have a digital footprint and who are we going to have do that? Um, they, uh, we, we have like an incredible working relationship and it's probably of anything that I've done. Like it is the, uh, this is the place where I've had, uh, uh, that I've enjoyed working at the most. If you had to give one bit of advice or something that you received back when you were just starting out, who gave you that bit of advice that you've took on board? The, the best advice that I've received and tried to take and use is um, in order to do jobs like this, the, in, in a creative field, you have to sort of take that leap of faith. You have to sort of trust yourself in order to do something that most people don't understand. Uh, you can't tell your parents, uh, I want to work in TV and this job is coming up. You don't know when jobs are coming up. It's it's not an industry that works in some type of uh, uh, cycle. Like I assume that there's law firms that every year they just hire five people or whatever. I don't know. I've never worked in that field, but I think that there's more of a regimented structure in some of those other fields than there is in entertainment. And so if you know it's something that you want to do, you have to take the leap of faith to do it, but you also have to give yourself a little bit of wiggle room, uh, not even wiggle room. Uh, you have to be easy on yourself because it can take like a good year or longer sometimes to find that job and get that in. And especially now, like I, I think it's been, this, you have to give yourself a mulligan for the last two years, basically. Like there, there's, there's very few opportunities to network, to meet people. And so um, I think no matter what you, what, what you want to do in the field, sometimes the first step is just moving to that city where that, that industry is happening. And that is a big leap that not a, not a lot of people do. So if you've made it that far, you've got to give yourself a little credit because you're, you're further along than a lot. And, uh, and I think that it's something I'm sure you've found since you started this podcast, sometimes you just have to reach out to people and that might not be the most comfortable thing to do either, but, um, and some people will either not respond or say no, but someone's going to say yes. And I think that that is, uh, something, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that that is an important thing to know and it's not always the easiest thing to do it's not a natural state to be to just walk up to someone like you know when you were in grade school and just be like hi you want to be a friend my friend do you want to help me get a job uh or whatever the 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 you know the unasked question is um but you have to be able to do that and gain the confidence to do that in order to eventually get to that place um the other thing is 
it's impossible to not measure yourself against the other people that are your age that might have gotten something before you have. And, uh, and then you're thinking, well, what, what did I do wrong? Uh, why aren't I there yet? Um, but as I'm sure you're also learning, there's no two stories that are identical. There's no two career paths that are the same. Um, and so you hear about the people who hit at a very young age because it's so unique for that to happen at such a young age. Um, and so I, I think um, what I've also learned from people who I started with who decided to move to a different career path and, and not continue in entertainment also is they don't regret having done it. So if you have that sort of like that thing that in your head that just is like, I, I got to do this. I really want to do this. Um, I think it's important to try to follow that as best you can. Um, and whether it takes you where you think it's going to or it doesn't, I, when you look back in 20 years, you're going to be really happy that you tried.